and welcome to the podcast, Biblical Question. We are excited you've taken time out of your day to listen to our podcast. For more information about us, you may visit our website at biblicalquestion.com. We will tell you the web address again at the show's end. We encourage you to open your Bible and follow along as we study the Bible. Now here is your host, Joseph. Well, hello there. Thank you for that introduction. We hope and pray all is well with you. Today we're going to be in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and would like to follow along, I would encourage you to do so. And while you're looking for that Bible, again, I want to remind you, we do have a, a web page with lots of information about us. Uh, different photos and things from uh, our ministry of years past. There's links to all of our social media. I would encourage you to check that out as well. Again, we're going to be talking about the woman on the in the well. Not in the well, at the well, excuse me. And uh, this lady really does not have a name. And that's how she is only really known by, is the woman at the well. And this event is only recorded in the John's Gospel account. And it's really kind of a revealing one. And as we go through this, uh, this might be a two-part uh, podcast. We'll see kind of how things go here. But we're going to try to cover a lot of information here today. This story uh, follows in the account of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the most famous probably verse of the John in For God So Loved the World statement. We're going to start here around verse 4. And as we read uh, about Jesus' conversation with this lone Samaritan woman who had come to, to get water, it's also known as Jacob's Well, located in Samaria. Uh, she was a Samaritan. Uh, this is a race of people that the Jews just really just despised. And having no claim uh, on their God. This story of this woman, it, it, it teaches as well about God's love. It, it, despite all of our broken lives, despite all of our history and past, uh, despite the fact that people may or may not know of our history or our past, but God does. And it doesn't seem to really have any effect on Jesus in this conversation. He displays his, his love for her and offers her a great invitation. So uh, God values us. He values us enough to, to actively seek us out. Yes, we are to be searching for God, but God is looking for us too, and he wants us to come together. He wants to welcome us to this uh, intimacy and relationship uh, with him, and he wants us to be rejoicing in our worship of him. There are many other valuable truths that we can take from this story and this event, and we're going to go through those here. Only through Jesus is the first point. Only through Jesus can we receive eternal life. Uh, John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 says, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So many different religions, uh, different thoughts, even within the church, 
of Christianity believe there are other avenues to get to heaven, and Jesus makes it really clear that's simply not true. Those other religions will always leave you thirsty and, and wanting uh, more off-the-wall type stuff, uh, never giving you the satisfaction of eternal life. Uh, the second thing here that we're going to talk about is Jesus is ministering to the to the outcast of the Jewish society. And that would be, of course, in this instance, uh, the Samaritans. And this reveals all people are valuable to God. Uh, and to Jesus' desire to demonstrate his love to everyone, including those people who we might think as our enemy. In John 4, verses 7 through 9, you can read about that. Uh, Verses 25 through 26, Jesus declares himself as the Messiah. And and the fourth thing here I want us to, to go about, thinking about, those who worship God, worship him in spirit and truth. And the fifth point that we're going to make, Jesus is a powerful tool in leading others to believe in him. Many of the Samaritans uh, of that town that they believed in Jesus because of the woman's uh, testimony. So, follow along here. We're going to be in verse 39 42, through 42. And here's the lady talking to the townsfolk here, right? The, the people. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more believers, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So additionally here, we can learn from Jesus's conversation with the woman here that there are three absolutes they're absolute truths about salvation. And the first one is salvation only comes to those who recognize their desperate need in their spiritual life that they do not have. Living water can only be obtained by those who recognize they are spiritually thirsty. Salvation, the second thing here is, salvation comes only to those who confess and repent of their sins and have the desire uh, for forgiveness. The third thing here, salvation only comes to those who take a hold of Jesus as their Messiah. The absolute truth is salvation is found in no one else, John 14, verse 6. And that's something we're going to talk about here right after this. Do you enjoy our weekly podcast? Though many of our listeners around the world in poverty-stricken nations aren't financially able to support our podcast, if you are able, we'd be grateful for your help. We offer several ways to help support the podcast on our website. Would you be in prayerful consideration in your cheerful donation or purchasing through one of our affiliates? Thank you for listening and may he have the glory. Okay, so we're back here, and again, salvation only comes to those who take hold of Jesus as their Messiah. 
That is where the absolute salvation is found. It is found in nobody else. And I know if you're a regular listener, you've heard me really harp about this a lot. There's so many people who really, again, think and believe that there's many avenues to heaven. If that's true, then Jesus is a liar. Why are we even bothering to listen to him? Why are we bothering to study the Bible? Our podcast is dealing here. We're going to point to two things here. The first one, again, is the dealing of Nicodemus, and the second thing is the Samaritan woman. And the third and fourth chapters of the Gospel according to John. The similarities in these two encounters are few, while the contrast, uh, the differences, are, are numerous. In both cases, Jesus presents himself to the individual as the promised Messiah of Israel. Nicodemus was a man, and the Samaritan uh, was a woman. Uh, Nicodemus was a conservative Jewish person. Uh, the woman was really a half-breed apostate from Judaism. Nicodemus was a prominent, high-regarded leader, perhaps one of the best-known religious leaders, teachers of his day. This woman, she was well-known in her circles as well, but her lifestyle had to do with the number of men she had lived with. Nicodemus sought out his interview with the Messiah, while the woman just had a chance in meeting him. It was just something that happened. So far, everything seems to be in favor of Nicodemus. We should not fail to see that there are some additional contrasts. Nicodemus was not reported to have been immediately converted. While the woman's faith is very evident, the, the, the conversation with Nicodemus really has no known impact on the lives of his peers. Perhaps... Somebody would say, well, maybe Nicodemus went and talked to the Sanhedrin and had an influence. Nah, they crucified him. I, I struggle with that. Jesus had to leave Judea because of the Pharisees. And that would be in the first three verses of this chapter. The woman brought back, notice this, she brings back nearly the whole town with her words and Jesus is invited to stay, as we read. While Jesus spoke of himself to the Jews in veiled terms, and, you know, in John chapter 2, you can read study about that, that he, he gave one of the clearest statements of his identity to this woman in verse 26. The Jews had already began to reject Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus has declared that he is the Messiah. He has made it very evident. But the Samaritans receive him as the Messiah of the world, their Savior. So, again, let's look at this account of this lady in, in the Samaritan city for lessons from Jesus in sharing our faith across a tremendous cultural barrier. And we have that in our world today. So this conversion of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, this, 
this meeting of Jesus, really, honestly, if you really think about it, is a bit unusual. Jesus is just passing through Samaria. And he's really retreating uh, from Judea, and he's going to Galilee. And the reasons for Jesus' departure is, uh, it's, it's really kind of un, an untimely popularity. The, the Pharisees were attempting to capitalize on a greater popularity of the ministry of Jesus than of John. They, they sought to promote it as a, a rift. Rather than taking advantage of the popularity, uh, Jesus will run from it. For it was untimely, it wasn't his time, that's the famous terms of the Gospel of John. And it would tend to undermine Jesus' ministry rather than underscore it. Again, so much has been made at John's statement that Jesus must travel through Samaria. Technically, it really was not necessary at all, and culturally, it was not custom to do so. If you would look at the maps in your Bible, you will see that Samaria lies between Galilee and the north uh, uh, Judea to the south. The shortest distance between uh, these points is obviously a, a straight line, which would mean passing through Samaria to get from Judea going to Galilee. Uh, because of the tensions that existed between these two peoples, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Jews, they chose at all costs uh, passing through Samaria. They would travel around it to the east, crossing the Jordan and passing through friendlier territories in their mind. It is what, since then, that Jesus is compelled to pass through Samaria. I mean, what makes Jesus do that? In part, our Lord would have, have done so to express his contempt for a, a narrow-minded bigotry uh, that some Jews had of his day. Certainly from a divine perspective, he did so in order to bring the Samaritans to faith. So the journey from Judea headed out. It, it's a hot, dusty day, and at, at the end of this journey, Jesus was tired, he's thirsty, and he's hungry. And as you read through this, you'll see that the disciples would leave him uh, by this well that was dug by Jacob, and they would go into town to, to buy food. Well, somewhere along the line, apparently, time is about midday. And this Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water. Now, most people would say the normal time for women to get the water was either early in the morning or late afternoon when it would be cooler. The well is a place for women to gather around and talk whatever women talk about while they filled their water pots. And we cannot say for sure why this woman came at the well at the hour of noon. Maybe she wanted to come because she just wanted to be alone. Maybe her past encounters uh, weren't so pleasant with the other women in town. But she counters this Jewish man. Think, of, think about this from her perspective. The nerve of this Jewish man to ask her for a drink of water. 
And then add to all of this, it really was not socially acceptable for a Jewish man, let alone uh, a rabbi, a teacher, to speak to any woman in public. See, the rabbis of the day, they believe even Jewish women should not be taught the scriptures. This is a, a, a racial, cultural bearers that present at this encounter are just amazing. And when, when Jesus asked this woman in John 4, verse 9, for a drink of water, she was completely caught off guard. And look at her own words. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Again, why would, why would she say that? Well, I'm going to try to answer that question right after this message. Would you like to make a bold witness for Jesus and Christianity, even when you're not even saying a word? You can both witness and inspire others in fashionable and affordable ways. You'll find the right wearables for men, women, and teens, fashionable and high quality. Our excellent Christian hoodies, Christian sweatshirts, and Christian shirts make perfect Christian gifts for any religious person in your life who would like nothing more than to express their faith through fashion and style. Check out our webpage for more information. Okay, so to answer the question before we went to our break, the Jews had no dealing with Samaritans. I mean, again, there has been bitter feelings between these two groups of people for centuries. The Samaritans uh, found their origin at one time in Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdoms of Israel around 721 B.C. And according to uh, the Syrian figures, nearly 30,000 Israelites were deported and being replaced by their heathen, you know, captives from all over Assyria. And you can read a lot about this in Second Kings chapter 17. And again, it's not long before the purity of the Israelites were defiled, not only uh, racially, but spiritually. I mean, they were forced, some of them, to intermarry, uh, they were wives and husbands were broken up and placed with uh, the Assyrians. And so that's why they call this a, a mixed race. The Samaritans' uh, theology was really uh, greatly different than a, of Judaism. Uh, the, the Samaritans only accepted uh, the first five books of the Old Testament as being uh, authoritative or even inspired. They they rejected the Psalms, the prophets, and the other books of the Old Testament. And when the Babylonians uh, exiles returned to the Holy Land, the Samaritans made an effort uh, toward a, a merger to get back together, but it was rejected. And as a result, there, there's always this open hostility uh, between them uh, from time to time. Uh, the Samaritans held their center of worship at, at Mount uh, Gerzim, Grism, and while, while the Jews maintained it was uh, in Jerusalem. And you can see that in John 4, verse 20 here, where we're studying. The Samaritans actually tampered uh, with the scriptures uh, and their theology. Around 400 B.C., a Samaritan temple was built on this mountain, and then around 128 B.C., this temple would be destroyed by the Jews, and relations between these two people really worsened. 
So with such a background to this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, evidence to the to to the friction between Jews and Samaritans can easily be found. They just really didn't get along. And so when Jesus would ask her boldly for a, a drink of water, Jesus is not in this mold of, of a Jewish stereotype. Uh, for the Jews never use the same vessels as Samaritans. There, there will be the, a, a progressive relationship of Jesus in this discourse. I mean, in this conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, again, Nicodemus was a ruler of the people, a moral religious leader who came by night. The opposite here is we have a non-Jewish woman who comes in the middle of the day. Uh, we do not see uh, the outcome in John chapter 3 of Nicodemus's response. But there's a big contrast here. There is an immediate response that takes place with this woman. And I want you to note here, for, for those who are taking notes, uh, there are four fact barriers here that Jesus has to come overcome to even speak to her. And the first one is that there is, it was just simply improper in that day for a rabbi to speak in public to a young woman. In fact, typically, even if you were married, you would often not speak to your wife in public. Now, some of us might think that's a good thing, but that's, that's just the way it was. Jesus, as a rabbi, furthermore, uh, should be more cautious about speaking to a woman, let alone a woman who was a Samaritan. There was a barrier of, of, the, of sex because of the public discourse between a man and a woman, especially an unmarried woman would not uh, be uh, acceptable. It would be looked down upon, and it was prohibited. Secondly, there was a barrier of race. Thirdly, there's a barrier of lifestyle. In fact, that's why she was coming in the middle of the day. Again, typically, women would, would come to the well early in the morning or at dusk when it was cool. And it was a place where women got together and did their gossip and talk or whatever women do. It's a place that they could meet because they could spend a lot of time there collecting water. Women would discuss things, who knows what they would talk about with one another, but it was a meeting point. And while she was coming in the heat of the day, she was avoiding all the, the discussion, perhaps the, the comments, the, the, the pecking and the giggling at her. And finally, there was this barrier of religion. Again, Jews and Samaritans do not share things in common. The Jews did have some dealings with the Samaritans, but the idea of sharing the same bucket was totally contrary to the concept. John verse chapter 4, verse 9. They do not even use the same dishes that Samaritans used. So back to our text here. Jesus 
answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, Give me a drink of water, he would in turn have given you living water. See, as it is, I have asked you for physical water, but if you knew who I am, you would have asked me for another kind of water. This radical and, and cultural barriers, I believe, have been removed. You know, this is why I think interracial marriages of different cultures, really, marriage is already hard enough. But then you add the different backgrounds and cultures. Uh, there's some barriers that are really hard to overcome, and in, both people have to be willing to work through those. But now notice this woman. She is willing to talk. And when she's willing to talk, it opens up the doors for deeper discussion with and about the gospel. Notice here. Jesus does not defend the Jewish bigotry, nor did he explain how he differed with them. His actions speak very clearly and divisive enough. This woman would never have been able to convert her heart or any of the townsmen without all this something this is something that we need to learn we need to learn how to overcome the cultural barriers again this barrier to evangelism is was now i mean it's gone the need to make the gospel relevant to this woman was a well uh, it's desirable so that she will listen and again to do this jesus worked upon her sense of curiosity and physical needs. We could do well to learn this ourselves. John 4, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Again, this statement generated interest on two fronts. First of all, who was he? There had been no formal introduction. Jesus just kind of teases her in her sense of curiosity. Secondly, what was Jesus trying to offer? I mean, what is his angle here? She sets aside the question of identity to get to the bottom line. What is this living water that Jesus spoke about? To a person living at the time, this expression of living water referred to running water, like a river or stream, that type of thing. But Jesus seems to be offering water that is even superior to this in Jacob's well. As Nicodemus had done, uh, she took the words of Jesus literally. Whatever Jesus meant, she thought, huh, he could not be speaking about the water from this well, for it was very deep, and he had nothing which to draw it from in verse 11. Starting in verse 12, he sa she says, You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and, and drank of it him himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, 
everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of this water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus does not say he is a living water. Rather, he would give living water to her. And when she received it, uh, she would never thirst again. Of course, that doesn't tell us what the living water is. For that, uh, we're going to have to go to other passages in Scripture. But in this case, Jesus is the temple uh, surrounded by uh, all these worshipers. And he suddenly he cries out here in, in John chapter 7, trying to explain this living water idea. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39 here. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this is what he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive from the Spirit, which was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, notice here in John seven thirty-seven, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Okay, so it seems to me that these uh, are wonderful things uh, that are being implied if anyone thirsts. Are you thirsty for the word of God? I mean, first of all, this is, water is free. It doesn't cost us anything. I know here... Uh, the water utility rates are always going up, but not here. This water's free. won't cost you nothing. There is a condition that you must have, though. I guess that's a, that's a cost, but you're going to have to be thirsty. There is no thought here of earning anything or meriting. Again, anyone who is thirsty is invited. Secondly, uh, the human soul has a thirst. It really does. We know he is not talking about a physical thirst here. I think common sense would, would say so. But what Jesus is saying is the soul has something like a physical thirst. I think that's why so many people are always seeking out some kind of spiritual inner peace type thing. When you, when you go without water, your body gets thirsty. And the same for your soul. When you go without God in his word, the soul gets thirsty. Your body was made to live on water. Your soul was made to live on God's word. This is the most important thing to know about yourself, really. Uh, you were made to live on God. You have a soul, a spirit... There, there is you that is more than a body, and that is you if you do not drink from this greatness, this wisdom, the power and the goodness and the holiness of love of God. In his word, you will die spiritually of thirst. The third thing here implied, I think, with this word thirst is that Jesus offers a satisfaction here. 
Everybody wants their own satisfaction, right? But the aim of all the theology, all the biblical learning, all the preaching is to spread the satisfying banquet for you to eat with joy and to protect the cooked food from the poison. I mean, the aim of cooking is eating, right? The aim of digging wells is, and getting to the water is for drinking. Everything Jesus came to do and teach is aimed at, at providing the soul with food and water to satisfy you and me for eternity. And this is what I see in this word thirst. The water is free and the soul has a thirst. And Jesus aims to satisfy the soul forever. And here is Jesus. He refers to uh, the Holy Spirit as living water. Uh, this influence of the Spirit, again, I think is, is begin, given in this conversation. Uh, it begins back even in the Old Testament uh, with the prophets. But the gift of the Spirit is that who has the indwelled Spirit in the, all believers. But that really hasn't been received yet. I mean, you can get that in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. 45 uh, so many people say that Jesus is the living water but Jesus himself intended the phrase to mean the Holy Spirit the one who dwells within believers seals their salvation it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to have this flowing out of the heart uh, redeemed by God that blesses you and me as believers and then brings us to the light of the world so back to uh, John chapter 4. If you notice here in verse 10, uh, she really doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know what he's going to offer. And she doesn't know how she could receive it. So when you stop and think about it, the gospel, right? Who is Jesus? Who does he and what does he have to offer? How do you receive uh, that, what he is offering? The essence, you know, basically of the good news, the gospel message. In verses 13 and 14, he's saying uh, that the water that people drink will not be satisfying and more bread, uh, more water will always be needed. It's going to be something that will sustain you only for a short time. Whoever continues to drink of the water and so on uh, will always be thirsty the things that the world never has, it never completely satisfies. And that's part of the thinking of the gospel. Again, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor have to come all the way here to draw. I mean, there's lots of things. You see what she's saying? I want this kind of water. I don't want to be thirsty anymore. This is work to come to the well and, and draw it out. I want something quick and easy. Sounds like our society today. She's not fully understanding this, that she's thinking some magical supply of ordinary water for the physical needs, and she's not going to come to the well anymore. And then suddenly, in verses 16 to 19, the rules change. There's going to be a need for a change in the way Jesus communicates with her. Suddenly and unexpectedly, Jesus penetrates, penetrates her defenses, with these words in verse 16. Go, 
Call your husband. Have him come here. Notice how she responds. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. She didn't say, I'm single. Okay? Jesus said to her, you have said correctly, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The fact is that she'd been married five times. Indicates that she's gone through this legal process five times. That she's longing for fulfillment in her life that she is so intensely looking for. And the woman said to her, to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know, that's one of those uh, come to light type moments. She recognizes him as a prophet because Jesus has the knowledge to know her inside and out. He can read her heart. Follow me down to verse 29. When she says to her people, uh, to the town, Come and see the man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Messiah or the Christ, is it? Okay, that's a question. The fact that Jesus knows her past impresses her, but it is a little bit too close to home, uh, so she changes the conversation. Again, Jesus really kind of cuts through the chase. He's not going to take the long way around the barn, as my grandmother would say. But she didn't have a husband. She has a lover. And he wasn't number one, he's number six. So, could there be other explanations for her our marital past? Could she have been a widow? Uh, could she have been divorced? Uh, all these questions come to mind. But unlike the woman caught in adultery, uh, Jesus, again, never rebukes her in, in John chapter 8. He tells her to go and sin no more. Uh, she's about to be stoned to death. But notice, go back here to, to uh, verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the only place where men ought to worship. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So it, it is not a question of where you're going to, to worship. In fact, Jesus said neither the temple had a pure or undefiled worship. And she raised this up this issue, you know, said, well, where should people like to worship? And Jesus, by saying that is controversial, can't be care, uh, compared in an importance to how Worship and whom you worship, but how and whom are vastly more important than where. Okay? Notice the response. Verse 21. Jesus turns her attention from where to how. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, there is an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, it's not the location that is important. And it is the act of worship that is important. Worship is not just uh, the things that you want to accomplish by going to a certain place that you might think is holy or what other people might think is holy. Uh, you know, notice Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 8, says, People honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship. Okay? So 
Worship is first most important experience of the heart. Prayer without a heart is in vain. It's always been about the heart since the days of Adam. Songs without heart are in vain. Confessions and creeds and sermons that do not come from the heart are empty. They're worthless in God's eyes. So Jesus says to this woman, do not get all caught up on all these controversies on how you worship. The vast more important thing is where. Okay, verse 22 indicates and introduces this question of who you worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. When all of our efforts to to be gentle and sensitive and respect the other person's religion are done, it, it is a time to eventually uh, come to the point where what the Bible has to say. There is a biblical pattern for true worship, and Jesus is saying, you know, yours is not based on the Bible. It, it's false. That's what he's telling this woman, and that would be true today. It's... Worship is not based off of the Bible. It is false. So many times they're going to throw back in your face as as a statement of arrogance or you're not being politically correct. Uh, People can worship wherever uh, the religions dictate to them, but you as Christians, you're always wrong in how you state it. Christians should be politically correct, Nah, biblically correct? Yes. Okay? Is there, a, is there truth? Have you bowed humbly before and then tried to persuade the other person to bow with you? It's not arrogance. It's love. The Samaritans rejected all the Old Testament except their version of the books of Moses. Their knowledge of God was very shallow, and so their worship was not correct. Okay, and so, verses 21 and 22, Jesus directs the woman's attention away from this question where um, and how in this theology-type discussion to the question who. Worship must be vital, it must be real, it must be from the true word of God and, and and how he wants it, and this perception of God is important. I think verse 23 tries to sum it up. I've been trying to talk maybe a little too fast here. The key phrase is in spirit and truth. Okay? But in the hour that is coming is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. These two words, spirit and truth, correspond to how a worship should go. Worshiping in spirit is the opposite of doing external ways you know uh it's really interesting to me how formal so much worship really is in so many church circles and i have a few preachers missionaries that listen to me and they're going to relate to this i I would think just try to change the order of worship and see what happens you're not going to be very anybody's friend that day they're not going to like it they're going to be they're they're in this rut and you know i i i remember one time really trying and, and i it, it did we tried it eventually but 
the, taking the Lord's Supper before we made an altar call, you know? No, no, no. Let's have the altar call. Let's have the invitation, whatever you want to call it, to uh, have people be able to come forward, to ask to be baptized, to, to ask God for forgiveness, to ask the church to pray for them, and have the right heart as you take the Lord's Supper. So many times, you know, everybody says, well, the only reason we meet, meet is to break bread. And they do that first thing, and then I've watched people leave, and they don't stay around for the rest of the worship. They don't sing to God. They don't pray to God, because in their mind, they have fulfilled their obligation. So these words, spirit and truth, really mean worship comes from the spirit within based on the Bible. Worship must have a heart. Uh, your head needs to be in it, but it needs to be a heart thing. With the coming of the Messiah and the people and their rituals in the days of Jesus, that was that's all about to change. You didn't have to go to the temple and make sacrifices and pray. Although, I mean, I think they prayed no matter where they were at. But God is spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit. Spiritual worship is that which takes place in the spiritual realm. No one who has, has trusted in, in Christ as the Messiah can truly worship if they are devoid of the spirit. I mean... Well, a legalistic view of worship in terms of ceremony uh, needs needs to really change. It it needs to be produced, promoted from the Spirit of God in His Word. God again has to be the object of our worship, and He alone has a right to determine how we are to worship. I mean, Jeremiah chapter ten, verse twenty three. Oh, Lord, I know that the way of a man is not in himself. It is not in a man who walks to the direct his own steps. I mean, we are not granted, listeners, the option of directing our own ways of worship. God is the one we need to look at for guidance and direction of our lives because that's really, really what we need to be doing. So Jesus... Uh, conceals his identity as a messiah from the politically oriented jews this is a false teaching that goes on in our world today not only did jesus openly uh, to the samaritan woman the apostle john makes it clear that jesus declared himself as the messiah to all people and notice when jesus you know the question i know the messiah is coming and jesus said, well i'm talking to you i'm the one i am he Again, this points that we must believe in Jesus. The Bible reveals him as the Messiah, the eternal God. He's the creator of all things, who took on human flesh, died as, as a, you know, the supreme and final sacrifice for our sin. He rose from the dead under his own power. Uh, and to deny either his true deity or his humanity to believers, it, it's a false Christ. Jesus told this woman, their father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus is seeking 
this emotionally wounded woman, spiritually damaged, to be healed and to worship the Father in spirit. So notice here, well, I didn't realize I've gone this long, but bear with me, we'll start wrapping this up. This, the, when the disciples get back at the uh, end of this conversation with this woman, they're absolutely amazed. And we need to look carefully and try to grasp the true cause of their surprise. John four twenty seven, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Again, they are shocked because he's talking to a woman, as we said earlier. Uh, there's many Jewish writings that you really want to search out, you could read about. But they, they appeared on the surface to be more concerned about keeping appearances above uh, reproach. And Jesus really just refused to follow the narrow-minded views of the rabbis and the disciples uh, did not dare to question him about it. Verse 27. So the, the reasons for this urgency of evangelism is twofold. I mean, this is really what all this is about if you really study John 3 and 4 and this woman at the well. First of all, uh, the time is far spent. The disciples seem to have this uh, sense there is no great urgency. Uh, the expression in verse 35, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest, is a way of saying, hey, let's hurry. Uh, what's the hurry here? There's plenty of time. And after sowing, it takes four months to harvest. Such a casual attitude is not accepted by Jesus. Verse 30, notice they came out of town. They they were all informed of the conversation that Jesus has with this lady. And she, they all come out. And here they are. They're coming toward the apostles and Jesus. And, and verse 35 says, Lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white for harvest. I mean, here comes these people. They are wanting to know Jesus. But this means uh, for the, the disciples, they there's no more time for preparing a meal and for eating. These people are hungry for the gospel. They really are ready for the harvest. And when they arrive with God's purpose and they get together, it is to teach them the gospel message. The second lesson here, I think, is has to do with evangelism in its very nature. Those who were arriving at the well were those who uh, they were prepared and received a response. Again, this work of Jesus and disciples is that of harvesting. It's the woman who had sown the seed. She'd gone in the town and told everybody about Jesus. And here they come out to meet Jesus and the disciples. And that's the very nature of evangelism. It is teamwork. It is a cooperative work. It is just not Jesus' responsibility. It was the twelve responsibility as well. And that applies to us. It's just not the preacher. It's not just a pastor. It is the entire congregation. Again, these conversations between Jesus and Nicodemus seemingly resulted in no immediate results. And if you and I had been asked to predict which evangelistic effort would produce the most fruit, we would have probably no doubt put our money on Nicodemus. But it really is a conversation with this woman at the well and a conversion 
of an entire city. John 4.42 says this, One indeed is the Savior of the world. The Jews were being very standoffish, and the Samaritans were very open to the message. I think John wraps up, as we wrap up this podcast, Jesus gently brought this woman to a point of recognition that he is God and her and her wrong type of worship. And you and I must come to the same conclusion and, and, and enter to, into God's presence. We need to be doing it in spirit and truth. This, this conversation in the story, I think, is a foreshadow that will take place much later in Jesus' ministry. Again, one conversation with an Orthodox Jew has no uh, results, nothing significant that we can find. The other uh, is the lady, again, who leads how many? The whole city. I certainly hope, uh, I know I've gone a lot longer than I normally do, uh, I hope that you understand um, there is nothing about our religious heritage. There's nothing about our physical uh, birth. It's all about our spiritual birth. There is nothing uh, that we can do in this flesh. It, we have to worship in spirit and truth. Our relationship with God must not and cannot be grounded in anything physical. I hope and pray that you really kind of replay this podcast again. Uh, try to grab everything. I, I got talking a little fast at points. I was trying to uh, decide in my mind as I was talking if I wanted to make this a two-parter. Uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll see what kind of comments we get back. Again, thank you for listening. And Lord willing, uh, we will be back next week. Please continue to pray for this ministry as we strive to, to, to bring you sound biblical teaching straight from the Bible. Know if you're being persecuted, we pray for you each and every day, multiple times. We do pray for all of our listeners. We hope and pray that you would pray for us, that you would uh, sincerely uh, support us in prayer and other generosities. Again, thank you for listening, and may God bless you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Be sure to hit the like button and follow us on your podcasting app. Please check out our website at biblicalquestion.com. All one word, all lowercase. In addition, we have a prayer request page, a way of contacting us, a statement of faith, and other resources for our listeners. Do you have a Bible question you would like answered on a future podcast? or prayer request. We would be honored to hear from you and add your prayer request to our list so others may pray for you. Subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on our social media accounts. Again, that is biblicalquestion.com. Thank you and may he have the glory.